take God's word and turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 9. Again, that is Romans chapter 9. We are considering, in the context of this chapter, uh, God's wonderful mercy as revealed in his purpose of election. Again, that is God's wonderful mercy as revealed in his purpose of election. Now, I am aware of, a fact, of the fact that, uh, you know, gathered here this Lord's Day, we are a pretty diverse group. We have visitors with us, some who have joined us for the first time, and you are most welcome. We have others who have maybe been here for a few weeks, a couple of months, some who have been here since the beginning, years ago. Uh, we all come from diverse backgrounds, um, different church traditions, and, uh, and so I am deeply aware of the fact, again, that we are a diverse group. And so I want to demonstrate my sensitive side this morning by beginning with just a, a, few, a few remarks before we return to God's wonderful mercy as revealed in his purpose of election. Uh, the first remark I want to make is this. I, I, am sensitive, I am sensitive to the fact that for some of you, this is not what might be on your mind. Right? This might not be what you're thinking about. And uh, you're here today, and you would like nothing more than to hear me rail against the Supreme Court, Planned Parenthood, and any other host of issues plaguing our society and country today. Um, I say to you, I'm actually going to do something far more important. I'm going to give you the biblical God, and I'm going to give you the biblical gospel so that you actually have something to say to this culture. We actually have something to say to our family, to our neighbor, to our community, to our colleague, so that we are clear. Number one, who God is. And number two, what is the good news of salvation, the gospel? So I'm sensitive to where you're coming from. And I would ask you to be equally sensitive toward what I am doing as I again emphasize the fact that you take every issue that has our attention in our day, put them all together, and they pale in comparison to me simply making known to you God and who he is. Secondly, uh, I'm sensitive. I'm sensitive to the fact that um, many of us, most of us, at least some of us, uh, we're raised in church traditions in which uh, the wonder of God's mercy as revealed in his purpose of election uh, wasn't really emphasized. As a matter of fact, it probably was never even mentioned. And um, maybe even scowled upon in the church tradition we were raised in, uh, we're familiar with. And the wonder of God's mercy as revealed in his purpose of election is confusing for you. Um, that might be understating the case. It might be downright perplexing, maybe even a little annoying to you. Uh, I encourage you, uh, and this is something I need to remind myself of constantly, so I'm again going to remind you that when we approach God's word, we need to be very careful to lay aside our tastes, our preferences, our likes and our dislikes, and search, 
purely for the meaning of the text. Whether it fit not, it fits with that little box we have in our minds that has been shaped by years and decades. Whether or not it fits, whether or not we can tie up all the loose ends, whether or not we can understand everything. Our deepest concern is not our tastes nor our preferences. Our deepest concern ought to be what saith the Lord. What is the Bible actually saying? And so I encourage you, if this is perplexing for you, challenging on any level, maybe even slightly disturbing, that you approach it seeking to discern, well, what is it the Bible is saying? Uh, Whether or not it fits into how I have thought previously or even my view of things. My third remark is this. I realize I'm sensitive to the fact that some of us are here today and you simply want to be encouraged. I've turned you off already with this talk of the wonder of God's mercy in his purpose of election. You're here, you're down in the dumps, and you were just hoping for a little pick-me-up. You were just needing a little shot in the arm, a little word of encouragement to send you on your way. And so I beg of you, I say to you, listen closely, because this is, that is exactly what this is. The wonder of God's mercy in the purpose, his purpose of election is a wonderful source of encouragement. A tremendous source of encouragement. Why? Simply for the following fact. We are happiest when we are praising God. We're actually happiest. I know this is a, this is a novelty to some of us. We're actually happiest when we're not looking at ourselves. We're actually happiest when we're not navel-gazing. We're actually happiest when we take our eyes just for a few moments off of our problems and circumstances and situations and fix them upon something far greater than us, something far more wonderful. We were made, and therefore we are wired to make much of God. That's how we're made. That's how we're constituted. We are, we, we are born worshipers. You worship something. I worship something. We were made to worship Almighty God. When we are worshiping God and praising God, that is when we are at our happiest. Well, in Romans chapter 9, in this tremendous theme, the wonder of God's grace, God's mercy, and God's purpose of election, we see just how big God is. And we are given innumerable reasons to make much of Him. We are given countless causes to worship Him, praise Him. And if only you would do that, my friend, I guarantee you, you would find a sure remedy to much of what ails you this day and much of what has troubled you this past week. So that's it. That's my sensitive side. Now back to me, my insensitive side. You know that isn't true. Romans chapter 9, follow along as I begin reading in verse 10. And I'm going to go, I'm going to stop in verse 18. So Romans 9, the 10th verse, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, what is the context for this? We go back to the very first verse in the chapter and we realize that the Apostle Paul is wrestling with a potential dilemma. The dilemma arises out of a promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 17. He promised to be Abraham's God forevermore. And he promised to be the God of Abraham's offspring for all eternity. Fast forward to New Testament times. Fast forward to the days of Jesus. Fast forward primarily to the days of the Apostle Paul. And what do we discover? We discover simply this, that the vast majority of Abraham's physical offspring have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and are therefore cut off from God. It raises a problem. Well, what are we to make of God's promise to Abraham? He promised Abraham that he would take his offspring forever, that that offspring would be his people. He would be their God for all eternity. Well, we look around and we see that obviously isn't what's transpired. Therefore, something's happened. God's promise has failed. Paul's solution is very simple. He states it at the outset of verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. It hasn't failed for the following reason. You've misunderstood to whom the promise was given back in Genesis chapter 17. It was not given to Abraham's physical offspring. It was given to Abraham's spiritual offspring. Offspring. As a matter of fact, as Paul's going to make clear in Galatians chapter 3, it was given to the Lord Jesus Christ, the offspring, the seed of Abraham. And therefore, all those who are in Christ, therefore God's promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. God hasn't reneged on his promise. God hasn't broken his promise. You've misunderstood to whom the promise was given. It was not given to physical offspring. It was given to spiritual offspring. Paul says, continuing on in verse 7, let me prove it. And let me prove it to you beyond the shadow of a doubt by two appeals. The first is to two brothers, Ishmael and Isaac. Both were Abraham's physical offspring. Were they both gods? Were they both children of promise? No, the promise was given to Isaac. It wasn't given to Ishmael. Let me give you a second example. It's Jacob and Esau. Isaac's sons, twin sons. 
Abraham's grandchildren. Well, if the promise was given to Abraham's physical offspring, well, that means Esau was included. Esau wasn't included. Jacob was included. And so it has continued throughout the history of the nation of Israel. All are not Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all true offspring simply because they're the physical offspring of Abraham. But we need to differentiate between the children of the flesh, physical descendants, and the children of promise. That is his solution, his resolution to this apparent dilemma. Now, in his description of that second example, Jacob and Esau, he says a number of things. This is by way of review from last Sunday, quickly. He, he mentions six facts in this illustration, this example. First is this. God chooses to love Jacob and hate Esau. It's right there in the 13th verse, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Not referring to God's common love for all mankind, but his special love for his elect children. Second fact is this. God's choice is between twins. One father, one mother, twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. Third fact is this. God's choice is before birth. Before either had done good or bad. That's verse 11. Fourth fact is this, God's choice is contrary to the only thing that actually makes them different. Birth order. Esau was the oldest. God reverses it intentionally. The fifth fact is this, God's choice is rooted in his purpose of election. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election. And so the reason why he chose Jacob and did not choose Esau did not reside in Jacob or Esau. His reason is found in himself and he alone, that the purpose, his purpose of election might continue. And the sixth fact, therefore, is this. That God's choice guarantees that works play no role in salvation. Right at the end of verse 11. Not because of works, but because of his call. There we have the wonder of God's mercy in his purpose of election. Stated simply as follows. That before the foundation of the world, God foresaw Fallen humanity, humanity, dead in his trespasses and sins. And from fallen humanity, he chose those whom he would in time call to himself through the redeeming work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross. And he did not do so for any reason in them but simply so that his purpose of election might continue, that it might not be according to works, but free, absolutely free, sovereign grace. Now, here's an interesting question. I hope you're asking. Stephen, how do you know you're right? That is extremely controversial, what you just said. Matter of fact, I know some churches where they'd show you the door right now and you would not be welcome back. Matter of fact, I grew up in that church. Matter of fact, I'm like that, and I'm thinking about getting a group together right now and showing you the door. How, how do you defend that? How do you know you're right? I know I'm right for the following reason. 
that whenever I think on this and whenever I wrestle with this, do you know what my immediate response is? And do you know what your immediate response is right now? That isn't fair. That's how I know I'm right. What? Because it's exactly what Paul then says in the 14th verse. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul knows. He knows. Because undoubtedly he heard it a million times. He knows that what he just said is going to engender a response. Because he's heard it so many times. And the response is this. That isn't fair. So let me put it to you in very simple terms, my friend. According to popular opinion, the doctrine of election is this. God before time foresaw those who would choose him. He foresaw those who would believe in him. And therefore he chose them. Which actually means God's election is meaningless. He doesn't do anything. It's just a response, right? That's why many of us never grew up ever hearing a doctrine of election because in many churches it doesn't mean anything. It's been eviscerated of all significance because if God's election is simply his response to him foreseeing our election, then his election is actually, it's actually kind of pointless and redundant. But that is a popular opinion. That what, what we mean by election is simply this, that God foresaw those who would choose him. God foresaw those who would believe in him. If that is true, does it lead you to say, is there any injustice with God? Does it lead you to say, hold on a second, that isn't fair? It doesn't. Do you know what that means? It isn't Paul's doctrine of election. It is that simple. Paul's doctrine of election will lead us, knee-jerk reaction, to proclaim that isn't fair. If our understanding of the doctrine of election doesn't lead us to ask that question, I guarantee it right now, it is not a biblical understanding of the doctrine of election. Because the rest of this chapter becomes irrelevant and inconsequential. So Paul puts it out there. There's his question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Here's his answer. Three words. By no means. He makes two appeals. The first appeal, verses 15 and 16. Second appeal, verses 17 and 18. In each appeal, he quotes from the Old Testament. Each quotation begins with the word for. In each appeal, he derives a conclusion from his Old Testament quotation. Each of these begins with the words so then, so look at verse 15, for or because, so that starts the first citation, and then look at verse 16, so then, his conclusion from his quotation, that's the first appeal. Now look at verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for, because, that's going to begin, introduce his second quotation, look at the start of verse 18, so then. The conclusion he's going to derive from his second citation. So two appeals. In the first, he quotes from the Old Testament, draws a conclusion. In the second, he quotes from another Old Testament passage and draws a conclusion. So appeal number one, look carefully at it with me, the 15th verse. For he says to Moses, 
out of Exodus 33. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Oh, context, context, context. It's fascinating. You go back and you read Exodus 33. Moses is on the mountain, right? And he asks, he prays, Lord, show me your glory. Do you remember that? That's his prayer request. And God says he's going to show him his glory. And what he says is precisely as follows. I will make, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Think it through, my friends. What is the goodness that God makes to pass before Moses? What is the name, the Lord, that God declares and reveals to Moses? It's summed up in this declaration now in our text. I will make, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I hope you're getting this. That declaration, that self-revelation is the proclamation of the glory of God. It is the proclamation of the goodness of God. And it is the proclamation of the name of God. Who is the Lord? He is the one who has mercy on whom he has mercy. He is the one who has compassion on whom he has compassion. What is Paul's point? Simply this, understand it. We have entered into the very realm of the nature of God. Is there any injustice with God? That doesn't seem fair to me. Steady on. For He says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And what is the conclusion, the inference Paul then draws, verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He builds with a second appeal beginning in verse 17. But the scripture says to Pharaoh, here the citation begins, for it's a quote out of Exodus 9, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In the case of Moses, my plan, my will, my purpose was to reveal the glory of my name. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In Pharaoh, my purpose is what? Yes, the revelation of my glory. In particular, the revelation of my power, that my name, his glory, might be proclaimed in all the earth. What is the conclusion Paul draws? Verse 18, note the words. So then, he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens 
whomever he will. So there you have it. Paul's answer to that troubling, perplexing question back in 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? I want to try to sum it all up. And I pray I don't confuse things, but here we go. In logic, there is such a thing known as the law of non-contradiction. All right? The law of non-contradiction. Meaning what? Two conflicting, two irreconcilable truths, statements, cannot both be true at the same time. That is the law of non-contradiction. So if I were to say to you, Jesse is sitting and Jesse is standing, you'd wonder what had happened to me, right? Because in my statement, I have what? I have broken the law of non-contradiction because Jesse can't be sitting and standing at the same time. It has to be one or the other. Are you with me? We should really learn that one. The law of non-contradiction. The two irreconcilable facts cannot both be true at the same time. All right? This question that arises in verse 14, and this is in essence Paul's point, breaks the law of non-contradiction. Why? Because the question is this. God who is merciful, is it right for God to choose to show mercy to some and not to others? In that statement, in that question, I have broken the law of non-contradiction. Why? Because I have affirmed what? God is merciful. And I have affirmed what? He has no right to choose to show that mercy to some and not others. What does it mean to be merciful? It means to give someone something they do not deserve. It means to be absolutely free, not obligated. Free to bestow something on someone for no other reason than a motive within me. If that is mercy, and at the same time I have this idea that God isn't free to show that mercy to whomever he pleases, what have I done? I've actually denied the first truth that God is merciful. Are you with me? It can't be both. It defies the law of non-contradiction. If God is merciful, guess what? He is free. He is under no obligation to bestow that mercy on anyone. He is free to give it to none. He is free to give it to some. He is free to give it to all. But the moment I say that isn't fair... The moment I say, well, he's obliged to do that to everyone, I have actually denied what? That it is mercy. It's no longer mercy. He is obligated. The two statements, facts, truths, whatever you want to call them, things are irreconcilable. And that's Paul's point here. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Little theology 101. God's just liberty. 
the mass of humanity dead in our trespasses and sins. He is no more under obligation to save us than he was to save the fallen angels. He chose not to save any of them. He might have chosen not to save any of us. He is not obligated. That is his just liberty. He chooses, and this is the mystery, for reasons that reside in him alone, unknown to us, he chooses to bestow that mercy on some, to turn around and then say, well, that's unfair because he's obligated to give it to all, is to actually undermine and deny the very nature of mercy. Go back, because this is the pivotal statement. Go back to verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. You see, God's mercy, we cannot divorce it from his purpose of election. If we seek to proclaim the mercy of God apart from God's just liberty in election, we actually undermine and turn the word mercy into something next to meaninglessness. That is Paul's point in the text. As I've been reflecting on this of late, these verses, 14 through 18, I've been uh, praying, seeking of the Lord. How should this impact me? What kind of an effect, what kind of an impact should these verses have this revelation of the very nature of God? What kind of an effect should this have upon us at Grace Community Church? What kind of an impression should it leave? You go back centuries in your mind's eye and you think of kings of old and their signet ring. Then when it was time to seal some sort of letter, document, something of that nature, what would they take? They would take the wax, right? And they would set the wax to the flame, and then they would melt it, and there it would be. And they would put that melted wax at the bottom of the letter or sealing the envelope. He would then take his ring, and he would impress it upon the soft wax. And there, his impression would be, would be left. I've been thinking in these terms as I've been studying these verses. What impression, deep impression, should they leave upon us? And I want to emphasize five truths. Here they are. The first is this. God's name, I pray that God's name is deeply impressed upon us. Look again at the 15th verse. Remembering the context in Exodus 33. He says to Moses, after saying, I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, before you. Here it is. His name. I will have mercy. On whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Oh, I pray God's name is impressed deeply upon your heart. Understand this. There is no external cause 
motivating God to show mercy. There is no external control compelling God to show mercy. There is no external constraint forcing God to show mercy. God, I've said it, here it is again, I pray we get this. God doesn't bestow mercy for any reason in us. Nothing. There is nothing that makes us to differ as Christians. There is nothing we have said, there is nothing we have done, there is no choice we have made. Even our choice to repent and believe is the fruit and, uh, and the working of His grace in us. There is absolutely nothing in us that sets us apart from the mass of humanity. He doesn't bestow mercy for any reason outside of His own will. If He did, again hear it, it would not be mercy. It would be deserved. It would be merited. God's just liberty in bestowing his mercy on whomever he chooses is his name. The essence of his glory. And I have to ask it. If you are not worshiping this God, then who or what are you worshiping? This is the God of Scripture. This is the God revealed in Bible. This is not an illusion of our own minds. A God of our own making, fashioned in our own image. This is the great I Am. A God who is unconstrained and boundless under obligation to no one, nothing outside of himself. And works for reasons unknown to us. And is merciful for reasons we can never grasp. But grasp this. It's not because of you. Not because of anything you've ever done. Or anything you could ever do. Oh, the impression this should leave. Awe. Wonder. Worship. Second impression is this. It flows from the first. God's mercy, 16th verse. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I said something similar last Lord's Day. Here it is again. The doctrine of election alone preserves the foundation of the gospel. Salvation. Oh, praise God. Salvation does not depend on my mood. It does not depend on my deeds. It does not depend on my choices, my feelings, my failures, my achievements. Salvation rests on God's mercy. Augustus Toplady summed it up better than anyone since. A debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy, I sing. A debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy, I sing. One preacher has worded it as follows. Oh, it's good news. Oh, this is great news. To know that the root of our salvation as Christians goes down forever and ever into eternal mercy. And it never gets to a point 
where it's contingent and dependent on your foreseen faith or your foreseen works or anything foreseen in you, but is dependent alone on God lavishing His mercy upon those who are most unworthy. Oh, the impression this should leave. Praise and thanksgiving. Third impression is this, God's voice. I hear God's voice all the time, says I. I hear God talking to me all the time, you know. Whenever I read the Bible, be clear on that. I'm not one of those who follows his hunches and impulses and inclinations and secretly dares to label them the voice of God. If I want to hear God, I'm looking for something objective outside of myself because I know my heart is deceitfully wicked. And I run to the only place I'll ever hear him. It's the Bible. God's voice is objective. He speaks through the Bible. Look at this phrase. It's almost a throwaway phrase at the start of verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, that should make you ask, hmm, hmm. The scripture says to Pharaoh. Well, I take a little jaunt back to Exodus, 30, Exodus 9, and I read that. It was actually God who spoke these words to Pharaoh. Why does Paul say, the scripture says to Pharaoh? Oh, get it, please. Because in the mind of the apostle Paul, they're the same thing. When I stood up here moments ago and read from Romans 9, you were hearing the very voice of God. Do you understand that? Stop seeking after visions and secret little messages and dreams and everything else. Pick up the Bible and read it. And I guarantee you, you're hearing the voice of God speaking to you. Oh, does that leave a deep impression upon the soul? That when I hear it read, I read it for myself. I recall texts from the old and the new that I have memorized. This isn't simply the Bible. It isn't simply Scripture. It is the very voice of God. Oh, does it leave a deep impression? Oh, it should cultivate reverence and obedience. Fourth deep impression is this, God's judgment. We see it in the 18th verse. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills. There it is. You thought I'd missed it. And he hardens whomever he wills. What's the context? He's given us the context in the 17th verse. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You know the narrative. You go back and you read it there in the book of Exodus. And we read what? That at times, what did Pharaoh do? He hardened? Let, you know, Moses goes, let my people go, says, thus saith the Lord. What's Pharaoh's response? He hardened his heart. On other occasions, and actually more frequently, what do we read there? God hardened his heart. What do we make of that? What is this hardening, first of all? A hard heart is an insensible heart, past feeling. And a hard heart is an inflexible heart, past bending. The heart hardens in three ways in Scripture. There are three hardenings, if you like, of the heart. The first is natural. My friend, you and I, we were born with a hard heart. 
Go no further than Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. If you have time, go read Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19. Paul makes it clear. We were born, we came into this world with a hard heart. Meaning what? Our hearts were insensible and they were inflexible when it came to God's truth. Hardened, dead in our sin. That is the condition of every man, woman, boy, girl. Everyone born into this world by nature has a hard heart. That's the meaning of the word in its natural sense. There is secondly an actual hardening, which is what? When that hardness somehow even gets harder. How? When a man with a woman through the course of his, her life persists in their disobedience continues in their sin, resists the call of God, there is an even further actual hardening. But there is a third hardening in Scripture. It's not natural, it's not actual, it is judicial. When God himself is said to harden the heart. Apply all three to Pharaoh, all right? Understand, recognize first the natural hardness of his heart. He was born a sinner. He was born totally depraved, radically depraved, dead in his trespasses and sins. He was not seeking God. He had no interest in truth. And that is the condition of everyone who's ever been born into this world. His natural hardness of heart. There he is confronted with the voice of God, the word of God, the command of God. Let my people go. Actual hardness. What did he do? He hardened his heart. He resisted the voice of God. And then we see thirdly in Pharaoh's case, what? Judicial hardening. God coming along and further hardening his heart. The third is the most perplexing. How are we to understand it? As follows, please, in just a couple of statements. God does not infuse hardness like he infuses mercy. Did you get it? God does not infuse hardness like he infuses mercy. If God were to infuse hardness, then he would ultimately be responsible for our sin. He does not infuse hardness like he infuses grace. Let me build on it. Listen carefully. God hardens the heart by simply removing even further his restraining grace. He doesn't put something there that wasn't already there. He simply removes the restraints, allowing what is already there full vent to express itself. You got that? We're like greyhounds in the starting box. Do I need to explain? We're like greyhounds in the starting box. We're caged. You're in there. The mechanical rabbit is there on the railing, right? There we are, restrained, constrained. We can't go anywhere. We'd like to, but we can't. Something is preventing us. The gun goes. The gates lift. And off we go in pursuit of that rabbit. That's the hardening of the heart. That's all it is. God does not turn someone into something he or she wasn't already. God doesn't put something into the heart that wasn't already there. God does not infuse hardness. He simply removes his common grace. 
He removes his restraining grace and he gives the individual full freedom and liberty to do exactly what he wants to do. And so God hardened Pharaoh, meaning what? He said, okay, I'm going to remove whatever common grace has been evident and manifested in your life. And I am going to permit you, give you full free reign to do exactly what you want to do. So what we had in Romans chapter 1, do you remember? Three times God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. God wasn't making people more wicked, according to what Paul's saying there in Romans 1. What was he doing? He's simply punishing sin with sin. He simply punishes how? By removing his restraining grace, permitting individuals to do what already resides within the heart. Hear this from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Oh, the world fell into sin. He's thinking of the fall, Adam and Eve. The world fell into sin. But God put a limit, a restraint upon it. Praise God. Can you imagine what this world would be like apart from his restraining grace? Do you know what it would be like? You ready? Hell. That's all hell is. Hell is the full and final removal of God's restraining grace and God permitting humanity to do what resides deep within the heart. That is hell. The world fell into sin, but God put a limit, a restraint upon it. This world would be complete chaos and hell if he did not do so. Just study history. We catch glimpses of it all the time. Just look at what's tra transpiring in our own culture. And some of the constraints and the restraints that are being removed. And how man is now willingly, joyfully, gleefully celebrating evil. It is the manifestation of the hardness of heart. God's not making people do what they don't want to do. But in judgment, what has he done? He is progressively removing his restraining grace and punishing sin with even greater sin. Oh, Lloyd-Jones says, the world fell into sin, but God put a limit, a restraint upon it. This world would be complete chaos and hell if he did not do so. Oh, but the moment God draws back his restraining influence, there is hardening. So that is one of the ways in which God produces hardening. He simply leaves the sinner to himself. Oh, does that leave a deep impression upon you? My friend, how many times have you heard the gospel and you still resist? Some of you have grown up in this church. You've heard the truth your whole lives and still resisting. Some of you have reached adulthood and you kind of wander in and out of the church, back door, front door, just kind of shifting around, never really embracing the truth. Do you not realize what peril you are in? Your natural condition of hardness of heart. Every time you resist the truth, increasing that hardness and running the risk of God's very judicial hardness. Oh, the impression this should leave upon us. Fear and dread. And now the fifth and final impression that I pray this text leaves firmly implanted upon us is this. It actually extends beyond the text. It goes back to the verses we're memorizing in Romans chapter 10. Do you remember them? Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. There are many mysteries in the doctrine of election. 
we don't pretend for one moment to solve them all. There are many questions that go unanswered. There are many tensions, and here's one of them, as we wrestle with God's sovereignty in election, and at the same time, this free offer of the gospel that goes out to all men, all women right now. Understand it. There is nothing, if you're not a Christian, there is nothing outside of you preventing you from becoming a Christian this very day. When God hardens, he does not prevent someone from doing what they want to do. You are not a robot that God has pre-programmed and said, this is the way it's going to be. No, you are a sinner dead in your trespasses and sins. And God, the gospel goes forth, a gospel rooted and fixed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that whosoever will may come. And the gospel is clear. The gospel is simple. The gospel is beautiful. That if we confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord. And believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, he will be merciful. And he will forgive us our sins where there is brokenness. He promises to come with healing. Where there is conviction, he promises to come with grace. Where there is weariness, he promises to come with rest. And where there is repentance, he promises to come with forgiveness. Oh, what a deep impression this should leave upon the heart, especially for any gathered here who do not yet know Christ as Lord and Savior. And the impression is this, summed up in two words, faith and hope. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, the one mediator between God and man, in whom there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent and believe. Our Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for how you speak to us through your word. Give us attentive hearts. Give us illumined minds that we might truly understand and grasp. You are a great God who defies the limits of our understanding, our intellect. May our hearts be overwhelmed by your greatness and by your goodness. And as we have contemplated your mercy this day, may we stand amazed realizing that it is not for any cause in us, not because of anything we have done or any works we have performed or anything we have brought to you, but simply because of your free and sovereign grace and mercy dispensed in the Lord Jesus Christ to all those who believe. We intercede for the unbelievers in our midst this very moment. Help them to put away the complexities of all that we have considered. Help them to put away for a moment the lingering questions and doubts and help them to focus on the one issue, the one real issue being this, they're standing before a holy God. And help them to understand that there is salvation in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we do pray. Amen.